To make a donation, visit biblicallycorrectpodcast.org slash donate. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. What does the Bible really say about communion? Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom, y'all. This is the Biblically Correct Podcast, teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I'm a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the scriptures. Communion is one of the main sacramental rites of Christianity, believed to have been instituted by Jesus himself at his Last Supper. For some, being able to take communion is a condition for salvation. For others, it is a deeply personal, spiritual, mystical, one-on-one connection with Christ. But is the ordinance of communion, or the Eucharist, actually in the Bible? Did Jesus really institute it? And if not, what do the scriptures actually mean when they talk about the Lord's Supper? Today, I want to challenge your preconceptions of the Christian rite of communion by taking a biblical look at what the scriptures call the Lord's Supper, or as the MGLT translates it, the Master's Meal. We'll start with a very brief look at Christianity's various views on communion, followed by an examination of the biblical source material for the sacrament. Then we'll try to find out exactly what the Master's Meal is, and then seek to understand why and how believers in Yeshua should continue to participate in it today. Now, depending upon one's faith tradition, you might hear communion referred to as either communion, the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper. And while some do make a distinction between the three terms, we often find them used interchangeably because they all essentially refer to the same ritual. Communion basically involves the distribution and eating of a sacramental cracker or wafer or morsel of bread and a sip from the communal fruit of the vine. And depending upon the particular tradition, there are variations on how this is accomplished, from the sacrament being administered only by a priest, one person at a time, to the elements being distributed to the whole congregation at once so that everyone may partake simultaneously. Now, as I understand it, there are four main views of the Christian communion and how the bread and drink relate to the body and blood of Yeshua. The first is called transubstantiation, which says that the bread and drink are literally transformed into the real, actual body and blood of Messiah. For about the first 1,400 years after Yeshua, once the bulk of believers were no longer predominantly Jewish, transubstantiation was the universally accepted teaching and is still the doctrine of the Catholic Church to this day. But then, with the arrival of the Protestant Reformation during the 1500s, other views emerged to challenge transubstantiation. One of these is called consubstantiation, which says that the bread and drink are not transformed, they remain unchanged, but that the real substance of Yeshua's body and blood still somehow coexists within them. This is the view widely attributed to Martin Luther. The third view, taught by John Calvin, is the Reformed view. This position holds that Yeshua's body and blood are in no way physically present as or with the bread and drink, but they are instead imbued with the spiritual presence of Yeshua. No longer is one eating Yeshua's flesh 
and drinking his blood physically, but is still actually eating and drinking him somehow spiritually. And finally, the fourth view of communion comes from Ulrich Zwingli, which is known as the memorial view. In this view, the bread and drink are neither literally Yeshua's body and blood, nor do they coexist with them, nor are they spiritually imbued with them, but are simply symbolic. The purpose of the bread and drink are to memorialize or remind us of Yeshua's body and blood. In other words, to remember his sacrifice for us. So those are the four main views of communion. Transubstantiation, consubstantiation, the Reformed view, and the memorial view. Now, to the uninitiated and even to some believers, the majority of these views sound just bizarre and even outright cannibalistic. So where could such ideas have come from? Well, believe it or not, from Yeshua. According to the teachings of Christianity, the ritual of communion was instituted by Yeshua himself as recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So in Luke twenty-two nineteen, for example, it says, And having taken the matzah bread, having given thanks to God, Yeshua broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body that is being given for you. Do this to the remembrance of me. And he did likewise also with the cup after the eating, saying, Drink, this cup is the brit hachadashah, the new covenant in my blood that is being poured out for you. So this is the scene that the Christian ritual of communion is trying to recreate according to Yeshua's instruction to do this to the remembrance of me. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all depict Yeshua at a meal with his disciples, and as he passed around the bread and the cup, he said that the bread was his body and the drink was his blood. Additionally, Yeshua is separately recorded as having said in Yohanan, John chapter 6, verses 48 through 56, comparing himself to the manna in the desert, I am the bread of the life. I am the living bread that came down out of the heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live to the age. And the bread indeed is my flesh that I will give for the life of the world. If you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and do not drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who is eating my flesh and is drinking my blood has life age enduring, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who is eating my flesh and is drinking my blood remains in me and I in him. So if we're taking Yeshua at his word, and we should, then it's at least somewhat understandable how the interpretation of his words could lead to these strange quasi and fully cannibalistic sounding doctrines. But when Yeshua tells us that we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood, is he actually speaking literally? Common sense should tell us no, but how can we know for sure? Well, one way is that a literal interpretation would directly contradict the plain teaching of Leviticus 17.14. Do not eat blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Anyone eating it will be cut off. But another way we can tell it's figurative, probably the more obvious way, is that Yeshua often employed metaphor and other figurative language to communicate deep spiritual ideas. 
Just as Yeshua says elsewhere, I am the light of the world, and I am the true vine, and I am the door. He's obviously not speaking literally. He's speaking figuratively. He's not a literal light or vine or door. And he's also speaking figuratively here when he says that the bread and drink are his body and blood. So if Yeshua isn't telling us to literally eat and drink his flesh and blood, or that the bread and drink are actually or spiritually imbued with the substance of Messiah, then what exactly is Yeshua saying here? Let's take a look at it again, this time from Matthew's point of view. First of all, we need to remember that Yeshua wasn't saying these words in a vacuum, but in the context of the eve of his execution and his final Passover with his disciples, the Passover itself being a memorial, a remembrance of the very first Passover in Egypt. And part of their Passover meal was the matzah, the unleavened bread, which is explicitly prescribed by Moses in the Torah to be eaten with the Passover lamb as a reminder of the exodus, of when Israel left Egypt, finally set free from centuries of slavery. And they also had there the fruit of the vine. So these elements, the bread and drink, were all just part of a normal annual Passover meal, nothing unusual or out of the ordinary. And according to Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28, as they were eating, Yeshua having taken some matzah bread and having blessed it, broke it and giving it to the disciples, said, Take, eat, this is my body. And having taken the cup and having given thanks, he gave to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant that for many is being poured out for release from sins. So when Yeshua said that this bread is my body and this cup is my blood, what he was doing in the context of the Passover memorial meal was to link the annual remembrance of the events of the Exodus also to himself, to explain how he fulfilled and embodied the Passover. That just as those perfect lambs were sacrificed and their blood painted on the doorposts of Israel's homes, causing God to pass over them, save them from death, and set them free from physical slavery— so will the sinless body and blood of the Lamb of God, Yeshua, be sacrificed on behalf of the world so that God's judgment would pass over anyone who believes in him, saving us from eternal death and setting us free from the slavery of sin. And this is exactly what Yeshua says here in Matthew, that his blood for many is being poured out for the release from sins. Release and freedom are the very themes of Passover. So the this that Yeshua wants them to do to his remembrance, as Luke reports, is that when they remember this major event from Israel's history, the Passover and Exodus from Egypt, that they also see in it a foreshadowing of him, that he is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. And that when we eat the matzah and drink the fruit of the vine at each Passover, we consume the reality that there is no true life without Yeshua, that there's no hunger and no thirst that he cannot satisfy. And we remember the greatest event in all of human history, the once and for all sacrifice that truly sets us 
free. So in saying, this is my body and this is my blood, do this to the remembrance of me, Yeshua wasn't instituting a new sacrament for the Christian church at all. He wasn't creating a standalone ritual separate from its historical Jewish context in the Passover meal, but was instead explaining his fulfillment of the Passover and the Exodus, teaching us how to remember them with their meaning completed in him. Nowhere in any of the gospel accounts does Yeshua even invoke the term the Lord's Supper, much less institute a sacrament known as the Eucharist or communion. So if Yeshua made no indication that he was initiating a new communion ritual for Christians, then where else could they have gotten the idea? Well, like many doctrines, it was fueled by a misunderstanding or mischaracterization of the teachings of Paul. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul quotes Luke's version of Yeshua's words from his last Passover almost verbatim. And he does this in the context of what he's already said about Yeshua's body and blood in chapter 10, verses 16 through 17. The cup of the blessings that we bless is it not the sharing or fellowship or communion of the blood of the Messiah? And the bread that we break, is it not the sharing of the body of the Messiah? Because there is one bread, we the many are one body, for we all share of the one bread. So this is where the name communion comes from. Communion in the sense of sharing, common union, sharing things in common. Yeshua has shared his blood and body with us through his sacrifice, and we all have that sharing with him in common with one another. We collectively share of the one bread, Yeshua. Then in chapter 11, verses 23 through 25, Paul recounts Yeshua's last Passover. The master Yeshua, on the night in which he was handed over, took matzah bread, and having given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this to the remembrance of me. He did likewise also with the cup after the eating, saying, This cup is the brit ha in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it to the remembrance of me. Then, continuing in verse 26, Paul adds his instructions. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the master until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the master unworthily will be guilty of the body and the blood of the master. And let a man be examining himself. And in this way, let him eat of the bread and let him drink of the cup. For he who is eating and drinking eats and drinks judgment to himself if he is not discerning the body. So the reason that these two passages in chapters 10 and 11 are typically seen through the filter of the institution of a sacrament is partly because of the way Paul appears to frame it in these last few verses. He talks about the worthiness of eating the bread and drinking the cup and how one needs to examine himself before taking it. Because if he receives the bread and cup wrongly or not at all, he'll be eating and drinking judgment to himself. Put this together with, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup and do this to the remembrance of me, all within the context of an easily recreatable act that the Messiah himself physically modeled for us, and it creates an optimal framework for the establishment of a religious ritual. 
But the problem is that when we look at these passages in their full context, it rules out the interpretation that Yeshua, by way of Paul, was instituting a new ceremony. Let's start with the first passage in chapter 10. First of all, Paul's comments about the sharing of the blood and body of Messiah actually come in the context of a discussion about idolatry and eating meat. And this discussion starts all the way back at the beginning of chapter 8, where he says, now concerning the things sacrificed to idols. So Paul's addressing issues that have cropped up among the Corinthian believers, one of which is how to deal with idolatry. And while Paul appears to wander off on a bit of a tangent in chapter 9, as he often tends to do, we're right back to idolatry by the time we get to our passage in chapter 10, which begins in verse 14. Therefore, my loved ones, flee from the idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge what I say. The cup of the blessings that we bless, is it not the sharing of the blood of the Messiah, etc.? Then after he talks about the sharing of Yeshua's body and the one bread, in verse 19, he immediately continues, What then do I say? That a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but that the things which they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers of the demons. You are not able to drink both the cup of the master and the cup of demons. You are not able to share of both the table of the master and the table of demons. So the purpose of this whole teaching here is simply to teach the Corinthians not to eat meat sacrificed to idols. He's contrasting the cup and table of the master with the cup and table of demons. But then, beginning in verse 25, he gets to his main point. Whatever is sold in the meat market, eat not examining it because of the conscience, for the earth is Adonai's and its fullness. If anyone of the unbelieving calls you to a meal and you want to go, eat all that is set before you, examining nothing because of the conscience. But if anyone says to you, this is a thing sacrificed, do not eat for the sake of the one who showed it and of the conscience. So while none of this discussion about idolatry and sacrificed meat at all minimizes the powerful truth in this passage about the sharing of the Messiah, Paul's main point in mentioning the cup and the bread is in juxtaposition to the meat sacrificed to idols. He uses the cup and bread of Messiah to illustrate a distinction between the godly and the ungodly. And while his teaching certainly has a spiritual component, his instructions are mainly practical. They're about how to avoid sharing in demonic idolatry through meat eating. That as long as you don't know the meat was sacrificed, it's okay to eat. Then in chapter 11, where Paul quotes Yeshua at his last Passover, he's moved on from talking about meat sacrificed to idols, but the subject is still about eating. Now he's talking specifically about believers eating their meals together otherwise known as breaking bread, as in Acts 2.42. And it's here in this context that we finally hear Paul coined the term the Master's Meal, or the Lord's Supper. Beginning in verse 17, he says, And in this command I give you no praise, because not for the better, but for the worse, do you come together. For first indeed, 
when you are coming together in a called forth gathering, in a gathering of the believers in quote unquote church, I hear of divisions being among you. And partly I believe it. Therefore, when you are coming together at the same place, it is not to eat the master's meal or the Lord's supper. For in the eating, each one takes his meal before the other. And as a result, one is hungry and another is drunk. Why have you not your own houses to eat and to drink in? Or do you despise the called forth of God, the church of God, and shame those not having anything? For I, I received from the master that which I also delivered to you, that the master Yeshua, on the night in which he was handed over, took matzah bread, etc., etc. So the master's meal is what Paul is calling the shared meal that believers would eat together when they gathered as the church, as the called forth of God. The plain sense of the text tells us that it was an actual full-sized meal, not a snack or a wafer with a thimble. It was enough food to satisfy someone's hunger and enough drink that too much would make a person drunk. And this was the problem that Paul was addressing. There was division among the believers, and part of that was being caused by their shameful behavior in regard to the master's meal and one another. While the master's meal was just an ordinary, everyday meal that took place during the believer's gathering, set in an ordinary member's home upon their ordinary table with ordinary bread and ordinary drink, it became transformed into something extraordinary and holy simply by nature of it being in the context of the called forth gathering. Because our coming together as believers is itself extraordinary and holy. Paul says that the master's meal proclaims the death of Yeshua until he comes. It represents something crucial that we need to always have before us, the sacrifice that brings us together, the sacrifice we all share. But the problem was, it wasn't the master's meal they were eating. It was the master's meal they were destroying because there was disunity and disregard for others. Some of them were showing up to the gathering and then proceeding to eat and drink everything before everyone else even had a chance to take some. So Paul was rebuking them, telling them that they're despising and shaming their brothers and sisters with their selfishness and gluttony. And so to support this rebuke, Paul then turns to Yeshua. The Corinthians were already familiar with Yeshua's Passover, as evidenced by Paul's statement in chapter 5, verse 7, for our Passover, Messiah, was also sacrificed. So they weren't being taught anything new when Paul recounted what Yeshua did at his Last Supper, sharing the bread and cup, speaking of his body and blood. So in recounting this, all Paul was doing was extrapolating from Yeshua's words and actions and holding them up as an example of sharing. He was exemplifying Yeshua in order to explain the importance of the sharing of the master's meal, the communal meal, and its importance for our relationship not just to Yeshua, but to one another. By invoking the words of Yeshua, Paul wasn't expounding on the ritual of communion, he was explaining the spirit of community required for both the called forth gathering and the master's meal. 
So unlike the communion of Christianity, there was no holy building with a holy priest administering a holy sacrament. It was just a bunch of normal believers gathering in someone's house, breaking bread, sharing with and serving one another, made holy by the promised presence of Yeshua. While the communion of Christianity is a ritualistic bread and cup, the scriptures bread and cup are just part of the larger communal meal. In Christianity's communion, the bread and cup symbolize or represent the body and blood of Yeshua. In the master's meal of scripture, the meal symbolizes or represents the believer's joint membership with one another in Messiah. And while the communion of Christianity focuses on one's direct personal connection to Yeshua, the master's meal of the scriptures focuses on our shared connection to Yeshua, which brings us together as his body, which is exactly what Paul said back in chapter 10. Because there is one bread, we, us, the many, are one body, for we all share of the one bread, Yeshua. This is why, after recounting Yeshua's last Passover, Paul talks about the worthiness of eating the bread and drinking the cup, the need to self-examine, and how we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. Because some of the believers were crucifying Yeshua all over again with their behavior, being guilty of the body and the blood of the Master. They were violating the sanctity of that sharing of Messiah, which is represented and reinforced in the sharing of the master's meal. Paul wanted them to specifically examine themselves for unworthy behavior that some of them were perpetrating on their fellow believers. So Paul wasn't talking about how to institute and approach a religious ritual. He was simply talking about the attitude we need to have when we gather and eat together with our brothers and sisters in Yeshua. It's really as simple as that. And again, while there's no doubt that Paul's instructions clearly have a spiritual aspect, they're still primarily practical. Paul even ends his discussion of the master's meal in verse 33 with his very clear pragmatic command. So then, my brothers, when you are coming together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you may not come together to judgment. The Christian ritual of communion while it has held deep personal meaning for believers across denominational lines for generations, it was never described or commanded by Yeshua, Paul, or anywhere in Scripture. What Scripture does depict for us is a master's meal that isn't primarily personal or mystical, but practical and communal, to unite us as his body through the remembrance and sharing of his selfless sacrifice. In the master's admonition to eat his flesh and drink his blood, he wasn't imbuing bread and drink with a physical or spiritual presence, but speaking figuratively of the depth of devotion needed to follow him and the height of commitment needed to remember him. Through Yeshua, we find the fullness of the Passover and the Exodus. When we keep the feast, we can do as the master taught us, taking the bread and cup as a remembrance of how Israel's salvation from bondage and slavery is completed in Yeshua's salvation, saving us from the slavery of sin. And in the master's meal, as often as we eat that full meal together 
in our called forth gatherings, we are to remember that we are united as followers of Yeshua. We are made one through that same crucified and then resurrected body and that we have a responsibility to share that Messiah who is in us with one another. Because the cup of the blessings that we bless is it not the sharing of the blood of the Messiah? And the bread that we break is it not the sharing of the body of the Messiah? Because there is one bread, we the many are one body. For we all share of the one bread, our salvation, Yeshua. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org to support the work of Perfect Word Ministries and MJMI through your much-needed donations. And of course, don't forget to rate, review, share, follow, or subscribe to the podcast to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, shoot me an email at kevin at perfectword.org. That's kevin at perfectword.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting a right, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom.